book of Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you were able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring or descendants be. Then he believed, Abram believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. The last time that we were in the book of Genesis, we considered the confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. At this point in the narrative of Abram, Abram was struggling with assurance. He was becoming very rich. His people were becoming a great nation, developing a name of their own. They were being called the Hebrews, those who cross over. God was also protecting Abram from his adversaries. All that God had promised to Abram previously seems to be, seemed to be coming to pass. All of the promises except for, for one that is. In chapter 12, God had promised that he would make Abram into a great nation and that this nation would be developed from a, a seed, a seed that would come from his very own body. God promised that he would give Abram a child, a seed. And through that seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. All of the other promises that God had given to Abram they hung on or they were hinged upon this one promise of God giving Abram a seed, an offspring. There can be no nation without first there being an offspring. Who are we going to give the land to if there is no descendants? All of the promises that God had given to Abram hinged upon, depended upon this child coming from Abram. And so... As Abram was in this fearful state of assurance, I don't know, I'm not sure, the Lord comes to Abram and confirms the promises that he has already made in the form of a formal covenant that is the smoking fire pot and flaming torch. We learn that God made a covenant with Abram or confirmed his covenant with Abram. We learn that a covenant is a a, a promise with divine sanctions. God graciously imposes covenants upon man as a way of condescending to man in order to improve man's state of being. God condescends to man. God makes gracious covenants, gracious promises on his parts. On his part, he says, I will do such and such and commands man to obey his part. Whatever God commands him to obey or gives him to command or gives him to do. So in this 15th chapter and really from the 12th chapter, we have only seen what God has promised to do on his part, his part of the covenant. 
we learned that uh, this is not a covenant of grace and this is not the covenant of grace. This is important. It's not a covenant of grace and it's not the covenant of grace. There is only one covenant of grace and that was promised in Genesis chapter 15 and fulfilled when Christ shed his blood upon Calvary's cross. And yet, in saying that, the Lord was gracious to Abram in that he confirmed the covenant with Abram who was dealing with some kind of uncertainty, right? Abram did not disbelieve the Lord. That's not what the Bible is teaching. He did have true saving faith, but Abram was a man of flesh and blood. He was a man from the dust as we are men from the dust, women from the dust. And he, just like we do, had a moment of despair. But this does not mean for one second that Abram did not have true saving faith or did not believe what God had promised that he would do. His hope was in God. And God came to Abram with a more formal covenant or with a more formal confirmation of his covenant promises so that he might give strength to Abram in the midst of Abram's valley of weakness. Amen. We learn that God does not change. God still offers to all those who are his that go through valleys of despair. God still offers to those his own. He still offers us rest. God still offers us that we take refuge in him. God's promises, hey, brothers and sisters, are still yea and amen and always will be. We learned last week that a bruised reed, he will not break. And a faintly burning wick, he will not extinguish. The Lord is kind to his children. He comforts us. He restores us. He renews our strength. We learned that there are two main portions of the 15th chapter. Verses 1 through 5 and verses 7 through 21. And they are held together, as we said last week, by one major hinge, that being verse 6. Let's read it again. Then he believed in the Lord, Abram, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. This morning we shall consider this verse with the Lord's help with three points concerning faith and righteousness. Number one, Abram's faith in context. Let's look at the context of Abram's faith. Verse six again, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Brothers and sisters, how does this statement of Abram's faith, how does it fit into the context of this narrative? Again, we have learned that there are two sections of this chapter, but there is a critical verse in this chapter. And that critical verse is verse six. What do we mean by critical verse? Uh, critical verse is it's meant to to stand out as being something other than or different than the rest of this chapter. What do I mean by that? In this uh, chapter, there is a certain Hebrew style that is being written. This passage, though, in verse six, it is kind of outside of the normal Hebrew style of writing. The way that the normal Hebrew style of writing is, especially in narratives, it's kind of a, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, because it's a narrative. It is meant to tell you a progressive story. But verse 6 kind of stands out. Verse 6 stands out, and it's intentionally standing out. Uh, it's not written in the sense of, and this, and then this happened, and then this happened. Verse 6 is meant for us to stop and take note. 
take note of something spectacular. Uh, why? Because verse 6 is kind of breaking the chain of events. Uh, it says, above all, Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted that to him as righteousness. The pattern of and then, and then, and then is broken. Although the Bible does say, and Abram believed, right? It's almost as if there is still that pattern, but it's meant for us to take a pause and stop. Verse 6, though, is not saying something that is uh, for the very first time taking place. Does that make sense? Because what's taking place in verse 6? Abram believed the Lord, right? The Bible is not saying in any way, shape, or form that this is the first time that Abram ever believed the Lord. You got that? This is important, uh, especially for us who, when we read the Bible, we may look for, for explicit things and say, well, if it's not explicitly there, or if it is for the first time explicitly there, this must be the first time that it has happened. Not so. Why do we say that? Because verse 12, or chapter 12, when God first called Abram to leave his country, what does Abram do? Does he stay? No, he leaves. Why does he leave? God commanded him to go. God made promises if he went. And what does Abram do? He believes God and he goes. So this cannot be the first time that Abram ever believed God. Because we have evidence beforehand that Abram heard God and obeyed God out of belief or out of faith. He leaves, correct? So then what is Moses doing? With this statement in verse 6, Moses was taking a step back and, and therefore causing us, calling us to take a step back, to take a look at the whole situation. Moses is reminding us of an explicit way of ongoing, not new faith, but ongoing faith that Abram has in God. Abram is growing in his faith. Abram was also being reminded by the Lord that he can trust in the Lord. We are meant to see that the proper response to the promises of God are that we must always wholeheartedly place our faith in God. The focus of this entire chapter is this. God can be trusted. If you're reading the entire, the entire 15th chapter and you say, what, what must I learn from this entire 15th chapter? You should learn this, that God is trustworthy. That what God has said, God will perform. Place your faith in God. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm going to say something that may be a little bit provocative, but I want you to hear, hear it all the way out. Faith does not save you. Faith does not save you. That may sound shocking, but again, faith does not save you. You are not saved by faith. Why not? How could I say that? This is all we ever say. Sola fide, right? How could we say you are not saved by faith? Well, what is faith? Faith is a strong belief. Can a strong belief standing alone save you? No. The strong belief must be in something, right? It can't just be standing alone by itself. So then what is your strong belief? What is your strong confidence in? Another definition is a firm persuasion. Right? If you are firmly persuaded or have a strong belief that Superman will save you, as much as I hate to uh, admit this and confess it, you will find that you have misplaced faith. 
because Superman will not show up for you. When I play toys by myself, he does, though. (laughs) If you have strong belief, strong faith that Donald Trump will save you, you will have find you will find out very soon that you have misplaced faith or any other president for that matter, uh, left or right or in the middle. If you have a strong persuasion or a strong confidence in yourself. That you can make it, that you can stand, that you can stand on your own two feet, that you uh, can pull yourself through, that you have confidence in self. You will also find out that you have misplaced faith. And there is a a great push and a great move for uh, us to teach our children, believe in yourself, trust in yourself. No, don't trust in yourself. Don't believe in yourself. I think you get the point. Faith standing alone will do nothing for you. Therefore, you are not saved by some abstract idea of standing alone faith. Faith must have an object. The faith or confidence that you have is only as good as the one you have entrusted it to. Faith, to say it another way, is only as good as its object. In Genesis chapter 15... Moses is calling us to place our faith in God. All throughout the scriptures, there is only one way or one in whom we are called to place our faith in, in order to be saved. And that is God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith does not save you. God saves you. And placing our faith in God and in him alone. Faith is the instrument, if you will, That God uses to save us. Any other kind of faith is useless. Any other kind of faith is misplaced. Unless it is is placed in God. Right? We are not called to have faith in our faith. Brothers and sisters. We are not called to, to say, I have big faith. Therefore, I'm saved. No, you have a big God. That is why you were saved. We are not called to examine how much faith we have. Or even to believe that we can manipulate the circumstances of life with a magic power called faith. This is not Star Wars. Right? Faith is not the force. And it's not as though the force is strong with some and then weak with others. Faith is not that. We don't approach the circumstances of life with the idea that we can push through because we have enough faith. My friend, you don't push through anything. God carries you through. To trust in some idea of our own strong faith is a form of idolatry. We must place our faith in God alone. And similarly, it is God that saves us, right? Not the promises of God that save us. Or it's God, not not promises per se. Just as it's not faith that saves us, it's also not promises that save us. It's God who saves us. Then let us be clear, we do want to say that we believe in the promises of God. And by trusting in the promises, we are saved and we grow in grace. But the point is this, we must never forget there is a person behind the promises. And it is in him you trust, right? You believe the promises because of the one who promised. Amen. The promises are only as good or only as dependable as the one who has made them. God has made these promises. We make, we may make promises to one another. 
and be greatly uh, let down when we fail to fulfill those promises. Can I say to you, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when we break promises to one another. Don't be so let down, so discouraged, so distraught that you no longer want anything to do with each other. Consider the person who is making the promises. A sinner. A rebel in Adam. One who saw the righteousness of God and said, yet I will choose my own way. Don't be surprised. Therefore, we should be uh, quick to offer grace to one another since we understand we are feeble human beings that break promises every single day. But consider God, who is not like us. Consider God, that when we consider God and His promises, we must not consider God as being like one of us, who will break His promises. We break our promises. God does not break His promises. He is faithful. He is sure. He has never failed to keep His word. He has never lied. He has never changed His mind. He has never then commit, He has never committed and then backed out of a commitment. We trust the promises of God because of the one who has made the promises, God himself. That is the only reason why they are dependable. That is the only reason why they are reliable. Because of the promiser. Abram has trusted, placed his faith in God. And known that his promises are trustworthy and reliable. He believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Now, second point. What is saving faith? What is saving faith? Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord and the Lord, he, uh, he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abram believed in the Lord. After hearing the promises of God, there was, listen to this, there was something that Abram knew that caused him to respond in faith. Faith is the instrument, but faith must be informed, Right? Faith was informed and therefore it was completely relied or placed in the object God. But sisters, what is saving faith? During the Reformation, the reformers identified three components of true saving faith. These are subpoints. One of those uh, components, if you're taking notes, subpoint A is knowledge. A component of saving faith, knowledge. We have just learned that faith alone cannot save. Faith is only as good as its object, God. We must place our faith in God. But we cannot place our faith in God if we don't know anything about God. Imagine those who say, I believe in God. And if you begin to ask them, well, do you believe this about God? And do you believe that about God? They may say, well, I don't know if I believe that about God. And what they are actually saying is, I believe there is an existing God, but he is formed in my image. I make him the way I want him to be. I form him the way I hope he would be. It's it's idolatry. We are therefore not worshiping God, but worshiping ourselves. We, We make statements like, my faith is in God. What do you know about God that causes you to place faith in him? What truths? Not from our own imagination, but from his holy inspired word. Do you know about God that causes you to place your faith in God? We often think, that it's not necessary to have knowledge. But is Christianity a religion of blind faith? 
Is Christianity a religion of empty information that is only fueled by feelings and emotions? Or let me ask you another question. Is it more important that we know or is it more important that we feel? What's more reliable? The objective truth of God's word or the subjective feelings that we chase after that are here today and gone tomorrow. I say to you, brothers and sisters, with all love and sincerity, that we often rely more on our feelings than we do on what God has said in his word. We often say today, I just don't feel it. But what has God said? Today I feel like, but what has God said? Even today, when some of us woke up in the morning, we didn't feel like coming to church. And some of us, some of those, have stayed home because of how they felt. Uh, Not sickness, I'm not talking about my wife. Honey, if you're listening, I'm not talking about you. But just emotionally, how I feel. My brothers and sisters, I say to you that objective knowledge from God's word is and always will be greater than your feelings. Knowing is better than feeling. Why? Because knowing informs your feeling. You hear that? Knowing puts your feelings in perspective. Abram, think about the condition Abram was in when the Lord comes to him. What what does the Lord first say to him? Do not fear. Abram was in, in, in a, Abram was in a funk. Abram was in a low state of emotion. He was in the valley. Do not fear, the Lord says to him. But Abram knew something about God. He was feeling away. But it didn't stop him from trusting and believing in the promises of God. He knew something about God that informed his confidence in God and that also informed his emotions of how he was feeling. Right. Abram believed because he had a knowledge about God because of what had been given to him by God and about God. And some want to try to downplay or minimize the importance of knowing. Some attempt to to misuse passages like uh, John 9, 25. One thing I do know. I don't know. But one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. That's all I know. And some of us say, well, see, the man knew nothing except Jesus set him free. And that's all you need to know. Uh, my dad used to sing a song, and I don't mean to be uh, jovial about this, but my dad used to sing a song jokingly in the prison that, that used to say, once I was a wino, but Jesus set me free. And that's what they used to sing. It was, it was I, I need to be as... as uh, It's okay if I don't know anything. This is all I know. And that's all I need to know. My dear friend, you failed to continue to read the passage. For that man's limited knowledge was increased when he came face to face with the Son of God. Christ found him. And what does he say to him? Do you believe in the Son of Man? What does the man answer? Who is he? Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? What is the man asking for? Give me more knowledge. Give me more information. Give me more understanding. Show me who he is. Let me know him. And what was the response of the Lord? You have both seen him and he is the one who was speaking to you. And what is the man's response? Lord, I believe. He didn't just stop. I don't know who he is. He said, show me more. Tell me more about who he is. And then when he finds out more, he says, I do believe. 
And do you think he stopped there? No. Oh, they will say, but knowledge puffs up. All we need is love, brother. Haven't you read 1 Corinthians? Brother, sister, once again, that passage is misused in order to minimize the believer's need for knowledge in the life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, the apostle is not promoting a faith that is empty of knowledge, nor is the great knowledgeable apostle telling us to avoid seeking knowledge, but rather, we who know must teach those who do not know with love and great patience. We must not arrogantly look down upon those who do not know what we know. By the grace of God, what we do. But we must teach those who don't know what we do know so that they might know. Got that? The point is this. That in order for us to have true saving faith, there must be a basic fundamental knowledge of the basic fundamental truths of God's word. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we say amen to that. But the apostle asked then a number of rhetorical questions. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless one is sent? And what is the conclusion? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. His conclusion is this. There is a great need to send out believers to share the gospel so that people might know Christ. So that they might hear the gospel and know the gospel and believe in order to be saved. You must not just believe that Christ existed, but you must have a true knowledge of the true Christ. The Lord Jesus said that there will be many false Christs. And you must know the real Christ from his word. So that you can distinguish between the sheep and the wolf or the shepherd and the wolf. In order to have true biblical saving faith. This is one of the reasons why I love our evening series on Christology. Christ is being made clearer and thus our faith in Christ is becoming not just a surface level. All I know is that he's, I was blind and now I'm free. But a deeper understanding of Christ. A biblical understanding of Christ. Wherein we correct wrong thinking and wrong believing about Christ. And more effectively point people to the biblical Christ. Do you know the biblical Christ? Does your knowledge of Christ sound like what the Bible teaches or like what the Book of Mormon teaches? Does your knowledge of Christ sound like what the Bible teaches or what the Jehovah's Witnesses Christ teaches? Brothers and sisters, faith and reason are not contrary. Faith and reason are not contrary. Reason, understanding, knowledge are all necessary for true saving faith. Is what you know about him true? I recently read a a sermon from Charles Spurgeon who spoke of a man. And this man claimed that Spurgeon was his very great friend and that he loved Spurgeon very much. So Spurgeon finally uh, met with this man. And this man said he loved Spurgeon. And so Spurgeon said, why do you love me in such a way? Well, the man began to explain the reason why he loved Spurgeon so much. And after all of his explanations, Spurgeon was was rather disappointed because the man explained something of Spurgeon that Spurgeon attested was not true. I love you for all of these reasons, Spurgeon said. Well, that's not me. As Spurgeon concluded to this man who claimed to love him so much because of what he believed he knew about him, he said, 
Listen to what he said. My dear fellow, your reason is absolutely false. The very thing you love, you love me for, I am not. And I hope that I never will be. <laughs> Therefore, I cannot accept your friendship if it is founded upon a misunderstanding of who I am and what I've said. How many of us would do that on Facebook? You would have a lot less. You might have two friends left, right? All of your abstract, fake friends on Facebook. Sorry. I'm speaking to all of us. Sadly, some of us will come to the end of our days and stand before the one whom we have claimed to love and know. Some of us will even say, I prophesied in your name. Some of us will even say, I cast out demons in your name. And what will his response be? It will, it will be sharp, it will be surprising, and it will be, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. I never knew you. The one who believed they knew Christ did not have a true knowledge of Christ. Saving faith must be accompanied by true knowledge. We must be known and know the one who was the savior of our souls. Abram knew God. Therefore, he placed his faith fully and completely in God. The second component or second subpoint. The reformers identified as true saving faith was assent or agreement. We must not only know, but we must believe that what we know is true. That seems strange. A- Abram did not just know, he knew and he believed. Why do I say it like that? Because there are many liberal scholars who accurately understand what the Bible teaches, and yet they completely deny that which they know the Bible teaches. They know that the Bible teaches that Christ died. But they don't believe he is their savior. They know that the Bible teaches that there is only one way to be saved and it is through Christ. And yet they have hardened their hearts and they refuse to confess him as Lord. And what a shame. It is a testimony of a of of a an untold great number. That have grown up in church like some of these little ones. Who have been taught the Bible from Genesis to Revelation only to grow up. And not have ever believed one thing that was ever taught to them as they were children. I know many that way. In the almost 40 years of life. And the years that I've grown up in church. Many, many who I walked into church with. Walked out of church with. And they are now walking with the devil. What a shame. That many know that Jesus died for sinners. That the only way to be saved from sin is to trust in Christ, to repent and believe. And yet they refuse. And one of us who are sitting here today, we know that the Bible teaches that we must place our faith alone in Christ. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet we so often wrestle with what? With assurance. As we measure our good works and wonder if they will ever be good enough when we stand before the throne of God. Have I done enough? Am I reading enough? Am I praying enough? Did I read enough of those books? What of us? We know that the Bible teaches that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. And yet true saving faith means that we do not forsake the commands of God. To love our neighbor. To gather with the saints. To partake of the Lord's Supper. To regularly give to support the work of the ministry. And how often do we, do we disobey all of those commands of Christ? And it's simple. If you love me, he says, you will obey my commands. Do you agree with what you say you know? Do you? And there's an obedience attached to that. We can properly understand what the Bible teaches, believe that it's true, and still not have saving faith because of the final component. 
and that is trust. To trust God is to say that we have hope not in ourselves but in Him. We deserve eternal condemnation, but praise be to God, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen. We trust alone in Christ alone. We place our faith completely in the hands of Christ, trusting that He has taken the punishment that we deserved upon Himself. And this is what Abram had. And this faith was given to Abram. It was given to Abram. There is no faith that you muster up on yourself. You don't find faith somewhere in a cave and say, I found faith. Now I can use it to believe in God. God gives it to you. It is a gift of God's grace. Abram believed that what God promised God would perform. Notice, now listen to this. After the promises of God, not much changes in Abram's life. God has made all of these promises, especially concerning the land. Let's just focus on the land. Abram doesn't even get to see that that land is going to be his in his lifetime. In his lifetime, Abram will not see the promised land being taken possession of. That will not happen until the book of Exodus. Almost 500 years later. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, all these, including Abram, died in faith. They died in faith. They died without receiving, the Bible says, the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. They saw the promises of God from a distance, but never experienced those promises personally. Imagine that. When he lived, Abram would not see all of the promises come to pass. And yet he believed in God. Brothers and sisters, what are you believing God for now? Maybe for family members to come to Christ. And that's probably the biggest one. You might not see it in your lifetime. But will you believe God still? Abram saw the promises of God fulfilled, not in his lifetime, but in the distance. Abram knew God. Abram believed in God. Abram trusted that God would fulfill all that he had promised. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven six. therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Abram believed God. These are the three components of true saving faith, according to the reformers. And more could be said. Trust me, more could be said about true saving faith. But this is a very good place to begin. Let's consider now our third and final point. What was the result of Abram's faith? Verse six again. Then he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. The result of faith in God. Is righteousness. If we were to use the language of the New Testament, righteousness is imputation. Imputation or righteousness was imputed to Abram. Romans chapter 4, let's turn there please. Romans chapter 4 and verse 19. This will be important for us to see, but keep your place in Genesis. Romans chapter 4 and verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he, that is Abram, contemplated his own body, considered his own body, now as good as dead, since he was a hundred years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, 
he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it, that faith in God, was also credited or imputed, your Bible may say, to him as righteousness. Abram's faith in God was counted or credited to Abram by God as righteousness. Oh, we said the word imputation or imputed. Imputed means this, to legally credit. To legally credit. It is a legal transfer from one to another. Or if we were to think of it, uh, imputation in regards to money, it is a debt owned by one that is legally transferred to another. It was as if your account was empty, and it may be this morning, but it, it was as if your account was empty, and that empty account was transferred to another, and that other person's full account was transferred to your empty account. May that happen in our lifetime. Or one final example could be one of status. In this case, the status or standing of righteousness. That is a right standing or innocent standing before God. That is justification. Innocent standing before God. That you don't have uh, originally. Does that make sense? You don't originally possess a right standing before God. And yet it is given to you. Why don't you possess a, a, a right standing before God originally? Because we are sinners, right? Because we are sinners. So we don't all, we are not, our children are not born with a right standing before God. They are not innocent. They are sinners before God. They need the righteousness of another in order to stand right before God. Our confession states in chapter 7 that God not only requires faith, but also gives faith that he requires. Abram was given faith to believe, and the Lord treated Abram as though he was righteous. What does it mean? To be righteous. It is holiness. We are not holy by birth. It is obedience to the law. Again, it is a right standing before God. It is purity in our actions. Abram did not have a righteousness of his own. If he had a righteousness of his own prior to uh, meeting with God, having faith in God, then there would be no need for righteousness to be accredited to Abram. Because he would have already had a righteousness of his own. It would not be necessary. Are you with me? We are not good. We are not innocent. We do not have an inherent state of righteousness because of our sin in Adam. We are polluted with sin. Now, at this point, I want us to slow down a little bit more. Why was Abram made righteous? How did God impute this righteousness to Abram? Right? Brothers and sisters, uh, we know that he was not inherently righteous. We know this. Was there some good work that Abram did in order to earn righteousness before God? No. I see your head shaking. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Was there some great victory? Was it the great victory that he won over the great power nations that, that caused God to say, you know what? You're going to be righteous. I make you right. Is that what made? Why are y'all shaking your head? No. 
What, maybe it was the, the altars that Abram built. That, that had to be the reason why God made him righteous. That had to be the reason why God gave him a right. Maybe it was the offerings that Abram offered on the altar that made God say, I will give you a right standing before me. So you guys are saying there's all of these heads like bobbleheads right now. Uh, you're saying that no good work, no righteous deed was ever done. Then by Ab- So then how did he earn the status of righteousness? He did not earn anything. There was no collection of books that he read. There was no amount of money that he gave. There was no extended time in prayer that he spent that caused God to grant this status of righteousness to Abram. My sisters, uh, there are only two paths of righteousness. And if we're going to be technical, there's only one path of righteousness. Paul declared in Romans chapter 2 and verse 13, that to the one who perfectly obeys the law, you hear that? Righteousness will be declared. To the one who perfectly obeys the law, Romans 2.13, righteousness will be declared. That's the path. Brothers and sisters, who wants to take it? Anybody? Anybody want to perfectly obey the law? Anybody think they are able? Adam, our first covenant head, destroyed that path. When he broke the covenant of works through disobedience in the garden. Now all men have been polluted by sin and they have lost, we have lost original righteousness. We are all now prone to wander, prone to sin, right? All who seek to walk the path of perfect obedience to the law, they walk blindly. And they ultimately fall to their demise. Taking that path. James said to those who seek to keep the law and fail at just one point. You break the entire law. So then how is one made righteous with God? How are the unrighteous made righteous by God? What exactly did Abram believe? Do you see that? Last week we spoke of the fear of Abram. He and his wife were growing older. The promise of of having a child seems to be becoming more and more impossible. Abram was looking for some kind of assurance. And what does God do? God makes a promise to Abram. Now, I want you to think of righteousness, Abram's faith, and what he believes in, right? Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 through 6 again. We need to see this. Sorry, 15. 15, verse 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Verse 2, Abram, O Lord, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, uh, born born in my house is my heir. Now listen, let's slow this down. The problem is a child, right? Then behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens, count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, not a new promise. We know this already. A promise that God has already made. Now being revealed, right? What is he believing that causes God to say you're righteous? Abram wants a child. And God says, I'll give you a child. 
Abram says, I believe you. And God says, you're righteous. What is he believing? Do you got that? Are you, are you hopefully slowing down where I began to slow down? There is something other than what we think Abram is believing that Abram is believing. Would Abram be declared? Do you guys know who, who, uh, his, whose child that eventually will come? Do you know the name of his child? Isaac. Is Abram declared righteous because he believes that God will give him Isaac? Is that what makes God say, causes God to say, oh, you believe I'll give you Isaac? Good. Now you're righteous. So then what is Abram believing that causes God to say, I am going to impute righteousness to you because of your faith? And what I've just promised. What is he believing? He's believing a promise that God has already made and is now further revealing. What is that promise? Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 through 3. He said that through a seed of yours, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So I ask you again, what is Abram believing? That causes Abram to say, I believe. And God's saying, great, I'm imputing righteousness to you because of that faith. He's believing not just in Isaac. Yeah, he believes Isaac will come, but he's believing in something beyond Isaac or someone beyond Isaac. Isaac will be an heir, yes, but there will ultimately be a greater heir through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because how are we declared righteous? Are we declared righteous by any other way other than believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. No. So the seed that God is talking about, that Abram believes in, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ's righteousness is then imputed to Abram as righteous because Abram is believing a righteous one will come from me and he will accomplish that which Adam failed to accomplish, perfect obedience. I believe in him. What does Jesus say? Abram longed to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Amen. This is the argument that Paul is making in Romans chapter 3 and 4 and 5. What, what is Abram believing? He's seeing Christ and he's seeing that that, that path of obedience that, that leads to righteousness, it will be walked. But it will be walked by, and it will be walked by his seed. The righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why Paul declares in Romans chapter three, verse 21, if you're there now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. There is a way to be righteous, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. We said there's two paths, right? And I said, really, there's one. The two paths are you can walk the perfect obedience, which Adam has failed. No one can do it. Or you can trust in Christ. Or the one path, the path that Christ has walked of perfect obedience, and you can trust in him who's walked it for you. Are you believing? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Abram believed the Lord, and it was accounted to him, accredited to him, imputed to him as righteousness. He is prefiguratively believing Christ through the incarnation, who would be his heir. He would come from his body. And through that seed, he would have a right standing before God. Believing in the righteousness, not of himself, but in the righteousness of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. Obedience to the law is still the path of righteousness. 
but it is a path that has been walked by the God-man, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has perfectly walked that path. Christ in his sufferings, in his humanity, entered into glory. Christ has endured the sufferings and entered into that glory on behalf of a people that he has foreloved before the foundation of the world. And when we place our faith in the work of Christ, in his doing and dying and rising, we are saved. We're saved by works. The works of Christ. The works of Christ. We are saved by God when we place our faith in Christ. His righteousness is transferred or imputed to those who trust in him alone. Just as Abram had righteousness of another imputed to him, credited to him. So we here today can have righteousness of Christ imputed to our empty accounts. If we would forsake all of our attempts to to build up our accounts and say, I cannot. It's impossible. No matter what I do, another bill comes and takes everything out of my account. And then I'm in the red again. But if I trust in Christ, I will infinitively be in the positive. And brothers and sisters, even after you trust in Christ, you can no more add to your righteousness through the law. True faith in, in Christ is not trusted in Christ. And then after that, uh, go obey the law in order to get to heaven. You are justified once and for all when you place your faith in Christ. You got that? Place your faith in Christ. And then it's not, well, now let me earn a right standing before God or, or let me now get to heaven. Let me do enough good works to get to heaven. You are justified once and for all. There is not a second justification, a final justification. You are saved once and for all. When you place your faith in God, our obedience after justification does not make us right with God because we have already been made right with God. And faith, brothers and sisters, it's a command. Believe in God. It's also relief, isn't it? We are not good enough. Trying to be good enough leads to a host of uncertainties. Faith is a relief. It's a free gift from God. You can't earn it and you don't have to. Isn't that relieving? To the ones who, who you are ministering to, ask them, how will you get to heaven? What is their, their most often common response? Well, I think I'm, I'm doing enough. I'm, I'm, I try my best, they say. I try my best, huh? Tell them your best will never be good enough. Place your faith in God and you will be saved. Abram believed in the promise of God that he would have a seed. And also a very numerous one. He believed that the Messiah would spring from that seed, Isaac. He believed in him as Savior and Redeemer. He believed in him for righteousness. He believed in him uh, for justification before God. And it was not the first time he believed what God had promised. God had revealed the gospel to Abram and Abram believed. But sisters, where is your faith this morning? Who is it in? I tell you that your faith in God is the only way through which you and I can be saved. So place your faith in God, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.